This is Code of Radio, episode 460 for April 4th, 2022. Hello there, you look nice today, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and Mike's taking the week off, I think, to hunt iguanas. I hear it's a big problem down there, in the house and outside of the house, but I'm not sure. I don't ask for details. So this episode, right on the 460, turned out to be a great one to reflect, to go back. And I was looking through the backlog and I was thinking, I know there's a couple of episodes I wanted to replay for you guys. And it turns out one of them aired exactly this week, one year ago. And in this episode, we chat about the new Supreme Court ruling that in the Google versus Oracle copyright fight that had finally landed. Like there was some finality to that after talking about it for a decade. And we had a moment with that. But there's a couple of other things in there. Like we speculate about future hardware advances and what might make us buy or switch to those hardware advances when they land. And it turns out, I think we nailed it. And then the other thing that's in here that's noteworthy is we have a discussion around Libidweta, which we'll talk about in the show more, but it's actually just shipping this week and last week. And for most people, they're not actually going to get their hands on GNOME 42 until they install a distribution with it, like Tumbleweed or Fedora. Or Ubuntu 22.04. And so it's wild because we're talking about what Lib does. And then the year in between that episode, 408, and this one, 460, was a year of fierce debate within the Linux community. So I think it's fascinating to reflect on that conversation. Plus, you know what? Part of me misses talking about HomePods and robes. So that was a lot of fun, too. So I hope you enjoy. I want to know if it's true or not. Did you buy another HomePod? No, because I couldn't goddamn find one. What made you decide to buy a third HomePod? Two, I get. Three, well, might as well get, might as well get four at that point and have another stereo pair. You know what? The HomePod is just significantly better than the Sonos. It is, isn't it? If you have iOS devices. Yeah, that is true. All right. Well, I just thought I'd have to find out. I had to, because I'm trying to... Now, the trouble is, like, I'm at the point where... Why don't they make the HomePod anymore and maybe lower the price to a more, you know, sane level? Because I would totally buy, I mean, honestly, if I had a multi-level residence or like a place with a basement, I could be good for five or six HomePods. (laughs) All right, now listen. Stay a while and listen. Oh, Decker Kane, there you are. I know, it's nice, isn't it? You got to work them in every now and then. I have a robe update. I have a very exciting robe update. So I thought maybe I'd talk a little bit about this because this was an area that uh, I think is interesting from a small business standpoint and managing your small business. So I'll come back to that. But uh, quickly, the update is domestic and U.S. orders should start arriving around May 19th, May 20th. We didn't quite make the window and the materials got used and had to be reordered because of some of the issues that held up the order, which are related to international troubles. Now, international orders, stand by. I'll have more news for you next week. We're still trying our best to work that out. I may have bad news, but either way, we'll get in touch with you as we try to sort that. Boy, a lot of lessons learned. I have rethought a lot of things, and um, I'm also very excited that we actually have a, a, like a ship date or an arrival date, perhaps, for the robes. But I feel like as a business, 
I'm rethinking my entire strategy around swag. And I, and I think what, when I look back at this as sort of like a post-mortem, I think one of the primary problems I had was I was attempting to do something that was really, really outside the norm for like my first thing. And additionally, I couldn't work with a shop that like shipping internationally was like the thing they did because of how unique this particular thing was. And so they were a domestic operation who generally would like just send like 100 or 200 units to me and then I would ship them out to everybody around the world. That's generally the type of customer they have. And instead, I was trying to get them to send it everywhere in the world, which they can do, but it's not their core competency. And as a result of that, I didn't appreciate how how much that would matter. But now I understand that it seems like for the kind of thing I want to do and to, to ship internationally at reasonable rate, rates, because some of these rates to like anybody who lived in Germany, the, the, the original pricing we were working with was $150 of shipping per robe. Holy crap. Yeah. The cheapest international shipping we had was $95. So it, it was a range between $95 and a hundred and some, you know, almost $200 uh, with the exception of Canada, which is like $85. Uh, so <laughs> uh, so now we're trying to sort that out. And I, it was clear to me what what would really work a lot better for, for a, a, an operation like JB who operates out of the States but has a worldwide audience that represents a significant portion of its audience. I have to build up some sort of operation where – we're printing the shipping labels and slapping them on boxes and boxing them up here and then dropping them off at the post office and they're shipping them off. And I'm just not there yet. I just So I try to get another company to do that part for me. And <laughs> the way they operate it is the way the type of drop shipping they do is they need all the, they need all the shipping information and get you know every, get every, every robe's destination and then come back with a quote. And then of course there's, you know, tons of back and forth and trying to find alternative fulfillment places and all that kind of stuff, which is where we're at right now for the international. But the domestic orders, what we decided to do was break those off into their their own original order set from the original supplier and just get those out and going uh, while we sort out the rest of it. I mean, I learned a lot and I think I've internalized a new strategy for the company and how we're going to learn how to do this. I can't just start selling swag. I can't just turn on a switch and all of a sudden I, I'm like, you know, stocking swag and boxing swag and shipping swag. First of all, it sounds like hell. And second of all, I have no idea what I'm doing. And third of all, I have no inventory. I have to figure out how to get that skill set while not bankrupting the company because it's this could go really simple where like I pre-order a hundred robes for a second batch, stock them here at the studio and then never get them shipped out or never get, you know, like I could just so many ways I could screw this up. So I have to build institutional knowledge while not screwing the pooch and keeping the train on the tracks while we try to build up this new aspect of the business. But I feel like my lessons learned here are if I want to be serious about how to do this, I'm going to have to be kind of responsible for at least at least like like maybe what I would do. I guess I'll say it, put it this way. If I were going to do this again, I would take pre-orders. And I would like make, I would just order 200 robes. And then once 200 robes were sold, that's as many as we had. We would, we could do a second batch if we wanted, but I would, and then I would box them up and ship them out myself with like a label printer and like, you know, on a specific day, 
a couple of us are here at the studio boxing things up, loading a car and, and sending it out a couple of times a week. And that's what I would do this time around. And then, you know, and then maybe open up another 200 orders or something. But I'm just not there yet. Or don't do it at all. Right. Rogues were a stupid idea. Yep. Yep. You shouldn't have done them. Nope. Nope. I warned you. I, I was I felt like a good challenge would would force me to dive deep into this and like I'd have to solve it in route. And, and that might be true. Unless we got Reese and Dylan and uh, Abigail, right? Your daughter. Are you talking about you're talking about ham slice in the chat room? No, yeah, we just enslave the kids and make them box all the ropes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm totally going to enlist the kids. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I have a 14-year-old brother. He just turned 14. Um, I'm totally cool with child labor. I'd just make it fun somehow. I'd figure out a way, you know, play some music, make a game out of it. They need to learn. No, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, my first job was a janitor when I was in high school. And uh, for all my young men in the audience, you think girls are neat and clean? Clean a lady's room. It will change your life. Should have done something much simpler, like a t-shirt. That would have been easy. Could have done a lot of t-shirts. T-shirts suck. They do suck. That was what it was. I'm so bored of typical swag. Let me just fix your problem for you. Do the Coder Radio beer glass. Like a Stein kind of thing? That's an interesting idea. Yeah, okay. I was even being like lazier than that. But if we can pull off a Stein, that's even better. That's kind of LUP 400 thing, you know. I mean, I'm just saying. They're hippies anyway. What are they going to care? That's true. What do they even know over there? Nothing. I have been actually legitimately looking for like a supplier of of mugs or cups that have like a ring around the bottom that prevent tipping. I mean, if you could get an actual stein with a hinge on it. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That would be cool. But I feel like that's going to have the same problem as the robes. I don't know. Yeah. And plus, plus shipping something breakable like that probably isn't a good first. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, fine, fine, fine. I don't want to dare, dare I touch the LUP monks of <laughs> feudal Linux observance. Right? How about this? Coda Radio Martini glass. That's right on brand. That's actually very on brand. I'm just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. And I can tell you I do Mad Botter Martini glasses, and that is not very hard. So. Hmm. All right. All right. I'm filing that one away. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could see it. I was trying to think of like uh, some something to put inside the glass too, like a stir or something. I don't know. But anyway, so thank you everybody. I, I'm going to get these robes figured out, and then I'm going to make some like lessons learned plans that they'll share with everybody on what from a business standpoint I'm going to do in the future. But that's the robe update for now. It's just it's been way more than I expected. Although uh, I did, I do totally acknowledge I brought it all on myself. I do this to myself. It is completely my fault. I acknowledge that. But I am excited to say Robe Bros in the U.S. You'll be receiving, you'll be receiving your robe soon. Those of you internationally, you'll be hearing from us either with bad news or uh, an alternative source or perhaps perhaps we will be just absolutely forced to do a round two. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe more robes will be demanded. You know, we get a lot of emails in. I feel like you're just making an excuse to do more robes. I, I think this whole like last five <laughs> minutes with you just saying you're going to do more robes. Personally, I kind of want to be done with the robe. It's been a lot. But, yeah, I don't believe you. <laughs> and here's what's going to happen. Uh-huh. In June, I'm going to start selling Mad Botter swag on here. Because you know what? I deliver. Do you know why I deliver? <laughs> I only sell glass and t-shirts. Yeah, I know. You know, shot glass would be easier too. Would have been a lot easier. Shot glass would have been a lot easier. Look at Java Jacks, the Coda Radio Sippy Cup. I have been looking. I've been looking. Something spill proof. But you know what? A lot of the things that they sell as like uh, rebrandable swag 
I seem like they're targeted adults for some reason and not children. <laughs> I mean, I feel there was no need for hate speech, but maybe we should just move on to the actual show. Yeah. <laughs> I think what we need is an artist and sippy cup created by the audience that we could uh, mass produce or maybe only make a couple limited. You know, the only person qualified to create a sippy cup in the world is me because I will find every flaw. There you go. You could be a good product tester. Oh, and then the, I think the other thing I'm going to do in the future, although I haven't worked out the details on this yet either, is I think I'm going to figure out a way that members of our shows can get discounts when they buy any of the merch that we do. Why the hell don't we have new stickers? Yeah, and stickers too. I think stickers are – I think if I'm going to be able to ship robes, I could ship stickers too. Dude, I can ship stickers, and I'm usually like depressed or hungover or like wiping <laughs> somebody's butt. I mean, uh, come on. Well, stay tuned because uh, stickers have been uh, a topic of conversation recently. Now, let's get into the email. We got a lot. We had a spicy inbox this week. Not all of them made it onto the air. But James S. writes in with an idea that I, I have a feeling you're going to think is terrific. He says, hey, guys, I love the show. The talk about the new Apple Silicon performance in the context of development, though, has triggered me slightly. I've long felt that developers should be working deliberately on low to mid-range hardware because otherwise it's just too easy to hide bad code behind a fast CPU. The majority of end users don't run the latest and greatest. They have older hardware. What do you think of this idea that if a developer has tons of RAM and a fast CPU, they almost always write code that feels fine on their system but crawls on hardware that the typical end user actually has? James, I'm sure you're a lovely person. And I think you're great. Thank you for listening to the show. Your idea is stupid. <laughs> what a developer should do is have a good computer with a GIMPed VMs for testing. Oh. So the VMs should be intentionally weak to test. For instance, on my Mac, my iMac Pro, I have a good Windows VM for dev and a very crappy Windows VM for testing. And it's like a third of the RAM and a third of the GPU, you know, allocate, you know, it's VMware, so the allocation, I'm sorry, it's parallels. I actually keep saying VMware. I don't use VMware. Mm, okay. I, I, I think I like VMware better on the Mac. I, I agree with your point, James, that for testing, you should use a slightly weaker hardware or significantly weaker hardware. I honestly think a good workstation with different virtual machines for different use cases is the best way. So again, I, 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 Chris, I agree with this point that like when I'm testing Windows software or any other kind of software like Linux, whatever, my VMs for testing have like the minimal specs. I don't want to have like five machines because that would be cray cray. To me. I like your answer a little bit better than yours. My answer was uh, I think most developers keep a lot of their older hardware around. Not me. I pour martinis into it. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think some developers have like probably a couple of iterations of machines around so they can use that for this thing called Q&A where they could actually test it on the older hardware directly. I am not a fan of limiting any developer's productivity. Like if you get in the flow and you are having one of those beautiful moments, I feel like the machine should be as freaking fast as possible to let you rip. I, like I buy my guys the best machines we can afford. Amen. It's the only area where I don't economize in the business. I don't, you know what, like what, what's the stupidly dumb expensive machine that the, the asshole who works for me tricked me into buying for him from System76? <laughs> the Oryx? Oh, that big laptop? You got the big one. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's got three monitors. I'm like, this is not what was intended. He's like, I know, but I have two, I have a giant GPU. I'm like, you don't need a GPU. He's like, I know, but you bought it anyway, you stupid bastard. <laughs> hey, man, you want smooth uh, window manager animations. Let's be honest. That's some, that stuff matters. It still crashes if he runs an extension. Oh, <sighs> that's too soon. It's too soon. Uh, actually, I have big news on that front later in the show. You're pregnant. <laughs> no, in the GNOME shell related world that I want to get your take on. But I think I think VMs are a good answer too. But trolling aside, right? Like the the question is, if if you're a company, right? If you're like someone like me, where you have you employ devs, it makes sense to buy them a higher spec machine than have them test in virtual machines that are intentionally slow. If you're like one guy, though, obviously keep your old machines back and just test on those, right? You don't need to buy a crazy iMac Pro that will be obsoleted by your MacBook Air within two years because Apple's evil. What was I talking about? Ron writes in, he says, hey, talking about Apple's gross. Dear Coda Radio, there are two kinds of people who use Apple. Number one, the technologically illiterate, and number two, the insecure. Group one is terrified of computers, and group two is terrified of coffee shop laptop shaming. Let's debunk some Apple fanboy myths. Now, I don't know if Ron's trolling us because he, he spelled fanboy with an I, which I think, I don't know if he's trying to be, yeah. He writes, the last time I spent 20 hours away from a power source was never. So implying you don't need long battery life. Oh, I have, I've definitely done that, but keep going. Yeah, I know. And it's like, if you've ever gone to an event. Do you speak at conferences ever? Yeah. A conference, like the battery life, especially when you get to that stupid moment where you realize you didn't charge. <laughs> you, le you left your laptop in your bag overnight. You get there to do the talk. You didn't plug it in. And because Apple only lets you have a couple of USB-C ports, <laughs> you're really in a tight spot. Uh, but battery life matters a lot for me, too, because I spend a lot of weekends completely off grid where I am only generating power that comes from the sun. And sometimes in the Pacific Northwest, there's not a lot of sun. Right. And I'm usually on a Coke bender. So, yeah. Right. Of course. And you, who's going to bother plugging in when you're on a bender? He says syncing digital content across devices has never been easier. iCloud isn't needed. He set up NextCloud in 10 minutes. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. 10 minutes. He had NextCloud going in 10 minutes. You were wrong when you said NextCloud, but keep going. I mean, this is this is a common thing that I think is hard for our community to understand. A lot of people have no interest in doing that, even if they have the technical capability of doing it. They don't care. Yeah. Uh, he says, staying productive during renders is not about hoping things get faster on the M1. It's about organizing your workflow. My custom PC used for content creation will scorch any Mac in existence. Wrong. Stop. Custom PC. Yeah. Wrong. Right, because most people are not buying custom, are not customizing their PCs. Yeah, I think so. What's funny is so what what I think guys like Ron kind of they don't look at the actual market and go, oh, like there must be a reason why a guy like uh, Marquez Brownlee buys the Mac Pro, right? Because I mean, I'm sure he doesn't like burning money. He'd rather probably buy the he'd rather spend that money on the next Tesla. He's you know he why so the, why are they buying that Mac Pro? And the reality is. Final Cut. It's Final Cut. It's If you ask them, they will tell you it's because of Final Cut Pro 10. Well, this is a developer show. Right? The reason I buy only System76 and Max for my guys is because I know out of the box with either of those machines, they can get up and running. Right. My biggest expense is payroll. 
And then additionally, like if one of those guys leaves and you want to move that machine to somebody else, do you want to move them some weird custom built PC or do you? No, I want to wipe it and put Pop OS, whatever, or Mac OS, whatever. And then you scale that up for like any company that has like an IT department with a bunch of employees. There's, it's just not scalable to do custom PCs. No, it, it, the custom PCs are, I mean, bully for you. No, that's great. Seriously for you. But when, when you have, like if I was just a solo shop, honestly, I probably would have a custom PC. There's still a group of individuals out there who think that what's selling Apple and why Apple is one of the most valuable companies in the world is because of marketing and fanboys. And I don't really need to dwell on it. I don't think it's, I mean, but my, I think it's worth realizing that sometimes we can have real blinders on to what seems to drive the market. What seems to really drive the market seems to be battery life and performance and, and um, I would say visual appeal. And then it's, it's something that, we don't quite grok as a community is the entire package, right? It's a product, the cloud services and the fancy Apple, you know, sales, everything is part of an entire product. When you roll your own next cloud, that's awesome. And I have two, I have, I have two next cloud servers. It's great. The reality is though, that's not a whole product. You built a custom PC, you loaded your own Linux on there and built it up just the way you like it. And then you set up NextCloud to do your syncing. And you did it all on your own. And that's fantastic. I, I host a show with Alex called Self-Hosted because I love that stuff. But I have to be aware that the vast, vast majority of the market, like the significant total vast majority of the market doesn't do that kind of stuff. And so they need a solution that works well for them. And the better and faster that solution is, the overall more people are – they're – Technology experience is improved. It's easy to dismiss this stuff, but I think it actually it deserves important consideration. And then, then the next questions start to become like, well, how do I make money on this reality? Like, if I want to have a business in software development and this is the reality of the market, how do I make money on it? Uh, I think that's a fair question to ask too. Uh, but uh, maybe it's not. Maybe your question is is, and I I'm not saying it is for everybody, but I'm saying often in the context of the show, that's how we talk about it. Maybe it's just how can I have fun with it. And Ron, that might be the area you're in and, you know, you can be wired to a wall and you never have to go anywhere mobile and you can spend the time to set up NextCloud and configure your Android client to sync with your KDE desktop. And man, more power to you. I wish I had more time to do that stuff because I love doing that stuff too. But you and I, my friend, we are a rare breed and we may be even fewer and fewer in some ways, at least compared to the overall growth of the mobile and uh, technology market. Next one comes in from Alex. Now, for him, the Linux desktop just isn't worth the hassle. He says, first of all, love the show. You guys are great. He goes on to compliment us for a bit. <laughs> so, but I'm going to skip over that. But I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. It's not you. It's me. Yes, I got it. He says you're great. And I just don't want to talk about it. You know, like we focus on it too much. Jeez. No, uh, he says some time ago, you asked people to tell you about their work setups. Remember when we came back, we did that for a little bit. He says he proudly wrote in about his high-end Dell 7 Series, 7000 Series laptop running Ubuntu 18.04 and i3. The thing is, I really wanted this setup to work. My employer insists on using some commercial VPN software as well as some other office software that only runs on Windows, but I had it working for a bit. I felt kind of like the hacker movie version of a developer spinning up new borderless terminals and i3 and switching workspaces all while never really leaving the keyboard. I felt productive. But then one day when going to our support desk trying to get some Linux corner case fix, the staff member most knowledgeable on Linux was out. And I had a full day of work ahead of me. 
So the solution they provided me was a used Mac. What I got was a late 2020 Mac Pro, fully decked out, i7, 32 gigs of RAM, one terabyte SSD. And the amazing thing is it doesn't really seem to get all that hot. I don't really hear the fans to the point where they're audible, even when running Docker or VMs. I did disable Turbo Boost, but here's the kicker. Docker for Mac works amazing on this Intel Mac. And I just brew install all the GNU core utilities and just eat the annoyance of some of the brew limitations. And I'm not really looking back. The setup's working really well for me. And he goes on to mention how he had some problems with uh, gaming, but he decided, you know, really for that, maybe I should just set up a Windows 10 box. In conclusion, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I've ended up leaving desktop Linux behind. It, of course, is the only answer for server-side work, but my dumb terminal interface to it is, well, a shiny, expensive, but effective gray slab from the guys in Cupertino. Alex. That's hard for me to hear, I have to say, as somebody who's been using desktop Linux for a very long time. I know you have a religious objection to computers that actually work, oh, but yeah, this is, this is why Max, this is why there will be no year of the Linux desktop, right? You don't see a lot of people doing blog posts and YouTube videos about switching away from Linux, right? You see a lot of blog posts and hacker news stories about switching to Linux. Let me tell you, how many of them do the blog post about switching back? I mean, I'm on an iMac Pro right now. Some, sometimes you see it, but you don't see a lot. But I've done several of the blog posts, and I'm on an iMac Pro right now. Just, uh, I just hate, I hate hearing this. <laughs> I really do. I hate, I hate hearing this. So I mean, I can tell you, I also have hated hearing a lot of things over the last, let's say, six months, and uh, it doesn't get better. So the M1 Pro is coming out in June. Oh, jeez. Too soon. Yeah, if they had a if they had a 16 core, if they had a 16 core M1 with 32 gigs of RAM and 2 terabyte SSD and 27 inch plus screen, that'd be pretty tempting. The only other like shoe or whatever the term is I'd need to kind of drop would be if I even got like a whiff that like the Linux M1 support was getting dialed in and it was like, you know, within the next year it's going to be working for sure, I think I'd probably pull the trigger. But it doesn't mean I'd, there'd be, I just have, that'd be one of many machines that I have. Oh, let's backpedal. Yes, of course. No, no, it's just the reality is, the reality is I need something mobile and I still need lots of Linux and it's not going to do those things for me because I'm not going to get a MacBook from them. All right, all right, all right. So it's, it'd just be one of many, but I'm not, it, it, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I think Apple's going to stick with the M1 for the remainder of the year and I'm not really interested in the M1 now. Now I feel like I got to hold out for something better too. So that's what I'm hunkering down for. The Fisher doth protest too much. <laughs> Maybe. It, I am in a weird place with it. I'll tell you that. I can feel it. It feels weird. It, I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable with it. And then the other thing that's hard is the lines between Gnome Shell and Mac OS are even blurrier than ever because now Gnome Shell has gone to horizontal workspace layouts and they have the same gesture as Mac OS to get to it. It's just one less finger. It's a three finger gesture instead of a four finger and they move the dock down to the bottom now and <laughs> the whole thing's feeling a lot like the two the two interfaces are colliding it's we've been here before sam yeah it's a weird overlap scott writes in though he says hey i changed my mind for javascript on the server i once like mike was just not having javascript on the server i thought it should always stay in the browser on the client side just use it minimally but 
My mind changed once I learned about server-side rendering, and it all clicked. This allows the server to build the fundamentals of a web page and then just send the browser. Oh, this is not new, Scott. This is not new at all. <laughs> well, he says it's nice because then the browser gets this nice little thing that it can just display really super quick. Any additional logic can be, any minimal logic can be done on the client, but the server does the bulk of the work. He says it doesn't necessarily negate the idea of Flask having an API for JS code and then load additional resources, but he thinks it might be worth considering when you consider server-side rendering. You're not having it, though. It's not that I'm not having it. It's that this has existed for a very long time. It's not a new idea. And this is how everything like ERB and Flask and Jinja, or I guess Jinja would be the Flask version of ERB. It's how it all works. The server-side builds the page and in puts it down to the shithole that is the web. I mean, JavaScript is a language that should not exist. I have written large things in JavaScript. I have had to just delete them, and I've lost tens of thousands of dollars. You need a better language. Well, I can't argue with you. I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm not going to die on this hill for this one. <laughs> it's, I, I get what you're saying, man. Like, it's convenient for what you're doing, but it's, it's not good. Like, it's, it's just, geez, I, you know, I'm not even going to go into the history of server-side rendering, but it's not a new idea, and it doesn't need to be JavaScript. JavaScript is deeply compromised language, we could say. It's not a pure language that has a fundamental philosophy, elegance, purity. Um, we could say je ne sais quoi, machismo even. Um, I'm just off the top of my head. I'm thinking of a language. Here are my criteria, and uh, that might be Objective C. Obviously, be a good language. Mm. JavaScript is a bad language. I think uh, the uh, the fat cat proposes we ban JavaScript from the chat. Promise you can't ban JavaScript. Just like you can't cure herpes, <laughs> it just won't go away. <laughs> uh, he said, and then Java Jack says JavaScript is what happens when there's no competition in browser languages. Spicy chat room tonight. Coder Radio Happy Hour. I am sorry. I did start it tonight with my moaning before the show. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's why you got to show up live so that way you can catch the moaning at jblive.tv on a Monday. Tailscale.com slash Coder. I am so excited to welcome Tailscale to the show. You can go to Tailscale.com slash Coder and get a free account for up to 20 devices and you support the show. If you don't know, Tailscale is a zero config VPN. It installs on any device in minutes. You can manage your firewall rules simply, your DNS, your networking, all of it. Very straightforward. I have it on an iPad. I have it on an iPhone. I have it on an Android device. I've got it on a Raspberry Pi running Linux. <laughs> I've got it on lots of VMs now. I've also been using this to connect my VMs together when I have some on my laptop and on my desktop. You can really just connect anything together into a mesh network using WireGuard's noise protocol encryption. So you're building a mesh network with the best VPN security out there in the business. And I leave it on all the time as an always-on interface. So now I essentially have a flat network between a series of my machines, and I've been able to set up bookmarks that point to their IP. And if you throw a DNS server into that network, Tailscale will work with that. And then you're starting to get name resolution over this private, flat, WireGuard-based mesh network. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even matter if you're behind a firewall or carrier-grade NAT, because I have to do that all the time. This has changed how I access my information, and it's also changing how I do documentation now. 
Now that I know I can always get access to these Markdown files that I have in my Raspberry Pi Linux box at home, I know that that's a good source to get and store information from. It's really great. And because it runs on all these devices and it's so quick to set up, you don't have to think about it much. You can get going in a couple of minutes. They support whatever single sign-on vendor you'd like to use if you want to go that route. So maybe you have like a corporate Google account or a personal account or whatever you, however you do that. What's great about that system is if you want to use two-factor authentication, Tailscale is going to support that as well. So when you install the client, which happens in seconds, you get a URL, you associate it with your account, and you're done. The network's established. It, it is so fast. It is so simple to get a WireGuard-grade mesh network set up in seconds. So go try it for yourself. See what I'm talking about and get 20 machines for free on that network when you go to tailscale.com slash coder. It's a great way to support the show, and it's a great way to start with something that I think will change how you work. You're never going back after you get Tailscale. Tailscale.com slash coder. All right, now it's time to talk about it. The Supreme Court has ruled in Google's favor in the copyright dispute with Oracle over the use of the, uh, I think it was like 11,000 lines of code or something. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it dates back to 2010 when Oracle bought the Java, well, bought Sun, bought Sun, and then Java came along with it. I looked back at our archives. <laughs> this is the story that's been, we've been covering for, yeah. Oh, Yeah. Remember, Oracle claimed that they that Google owed them eight point eight billion dollars and four hundred seventy five million in lost potential licensing revenue. And then in two thousand and sixteen, a jury found that Google's use of that structure and sequence and organization of Java APIs was fair use. But then the Court of Appeals and the Federal Circuit overturned that decision into Oracle's favor, and they just went back and forth. What felt like forever. <laughs> and to be fair, I was initially on Oracle's side because Google literally copy pasted some of the headers and everything. But not that they couldn't use the API, but that they should pay some damages for literally copy pasta. Right. Like, come on. Yeah, it was. And the thing I think that we thought was pretty damning was the emails from the executives that kind of just said, we're going to do this and we're either going to have to license it or, or fight them in court one day. Well, well if you remember, and, and, and I did my research today, I actually did my job today, Chris. You should pat me on the back. Thank you. Just for you. I rang the bell. Um, they could have used C Sharp for free, but because they hated Microsoft, they wouldn't do it, right? Yeah, and there was the sense back there. I mean, you remember back then when they were first starting Android, like the sense was that the whole world of these devices were going to run on Java. Well, hang on. If we're going back, there's only one gentleman that can help us. Perfect. I was thinking Deckard Kane, but you went a different direction. Oh, oh, you mean you like, you want to go, you want to share a story. That's, that's, that's story time. Stay a while and listen. Back in the day, Microsoft was actually a scary company. But now they're a little hippie company that runs Azure. But they used to put companies out of business. Yeah, kids, Microsoft was actually scary at one point. Yeah, and I guess there was also this feeling at Google that like Microsoft was the big bad guy. The world was going to run all these like, I remember Blu-ray players back then were running Java. Like everything was going to be Java based. Everything that Microsoft did was bad. And I think that they figured we'll, 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 we'll swoop up a huge... Uh, amount of developers who can already target our platform that'll get us in the race against Apple as fast as possible. From India that are cheap, yes. But yeah, you and I both thought, boy, Oracle could win this, but it would be bad if they did. And I actually thought there was a good shot 
that Oracle was going to win it, and I, I couldn't really comprehend what the knock-on effects of that would be. But well, so it's on tape, right? Like I was pretty pissed about this because I felt like just stealing Java. But they didn't really see, see the problem was Google was kind of right, but I didn't like what they were doing because this is going to sound super old manish, but Objective C at the time requiring memory memory management allowed me just to charge a lot of money. That made me very happy. <laughs> it seemed like they knew there was some questionable activity to it. Like they kind of had a sense that maybe they were in a gray area. Well, in their emails, they they knew. They knew. What we have here is kind of like a half decision, though, because the question is, are APIs copyrightable? That's been skirted by the court here. They focused on fair use, and they didn't really establish the copyright precedent. It's like the case establishes a precedent that if you're copying API and its primary purpose is matching interface so that developers can re-implement it, you're in fair use territory, which it doesn't really answer the primary question of the copyright violation. So I have a service that copies the API for AWS S3. Yeah. I have not talked about this on the show because... Um, oh, you mean you really do? I really for do. For real? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. theoretical. Okay. I've seen Bezos's uh, pecker, let's say. Thank you, Reddit. And uh, I'm pretty sure he would slam that right up my bum. <laughs> no, you can, I mean, you can, you can, I run an object storage. Right, no, right? Like I could have the right. exact same programmable interface and my whole thing I do with this is go to people that are spending a lot of money on S3 so we can set you up in our data center. Literally, you change the API keys, you change the endpoint, uh, the secret key, that all, all that nonsense. And bam, you're saving thousands of dollars a year yeah and it can also like in some cases yeah you work with a smaller business that can be more hands-on that can be more attentive that does you know right and we can offer you added custom benefits like whatever crazy stuff you need so like i'm spiritually on the side of oracle with this but i felt like google was so brazen in how they did it i mean we, we listened to the back catalog folks i was pretty rough on google and chris was i mean chris said microsoft was great and we should all run windows vista at the time so i don't know i mean like and i did that like every episode it was weird i just want to say youtube google at uh, i'm sorry windows action show uh, <laughs> yeah joking aside i feel like i sort of this is anticlimactic in a way right it doesn't matter nothing happened yeah i mean it well it it, it matters i think it matters in that if the had gone if it had gone the other way then then it meant that implementing an identical API could be there could have set they could have set precedent that that is a copyrightable like court case that you could you could pursue. What are you talking about? When I was nineteen, I tried to open Mercury Broadcasting. Oh, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like if 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 Oracle had won, it would have set a precedent that other companies could have sued other individuals who've re-implemented their APIs. Well, well, hang on. If Oracle had won. Then Minio, as a as an open source project, would fail, and as a company, Oracle database, which was a clone of IBM database, right from the interface layer, would itself be invalid. Because let's let's Deckard Cain style go back here. Oracle's original business was being a clone of IBM's proprietary databases, but a little cheaper. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought it. You're right. I hadn't thought about that in a while. But <laughs> I mean, this this is the quarter sin calling the prostitute a whore. I mean, this is not right. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, it is kind of, you know, but <clears throat> I guess companies change, I suppose. But there is some irony in that. It's very simple. When you're small, you have to work outside the law because 
you have nothing to lose. When you're big, like, by the way, we don't talk about this on this show because unfiltered exists, but Facebook suggesting internet regulations is like the Nazis suggesting housing regulations. It's just not good. You don't want it. Yeah, they have lobbyists, so they can, uh, that's that's a direct, that's something they can shape. When I think about my feelings over the last nearly a decade of this thing, I think a piece of me wanted Google to have to pay some penance for the stunt they pulled with Android. For being I can't ever forgive them for Android. It is a bastardization of Linux that is horrible. And they made so many decisions in the name of adoption. It just doesn't work. Well, you go back to, remember, they were going with something that was cursor-driven until they saw the iPhone event, and then they switched to their Moonshot project, which was touch-driven. But Android, when it first shipped, you could still dig out the cursor. It was very much still very touch-focused. How about Project Butter? Right. All the time, all the times they had to address the performance, they, they slapped together this system that was horribly unoptimized. I mean, the early versions of Android were really bad. Because it was not native code running on these. Yeah, so folks who are younger won't remember, these ARM processors on mobile were back in the day. They were terrible. Really bad. Yeah, yeah. The reason iPhone programming was hard and I got to make lots of money doing it is because you had no memory. <laughs> it was terrible. Loading images in a list view or UI scroll view, if you will, was actually like you... People had different strategies and there were... There, I'm sure you can find them on Reddit. There were blog posts debating what is the right way to load images on iOS because you didn't have the memory to do it. Come on, you know this is true. Oh, yeah. And it was so much worse on Android. because. And then you'll recall, I don't need to re- recap history, but the incredible compromises they made with carriers to uh, to get great sweetheart deals with the carriers to compete with the iPhone, like allowing carriers to bastardize up the firmwares with their crappy apps and tracking they they crossed all these lines in the name of adoption that I felt like created a product that didn't learn anything from the Windows PC OEM era that makes shipping updates easy and fast and secure. And we ended up with an OS that's now, in reality, in the pockets of millions of consumers with out-of-date Linux kernels, out-of-date Bluetooth stacks, tons of vulnerabilities, vendors who stopped patching because they didn't have some driver licensing deal that went beyond two years, so they couldn't supply updates past that. And so now it just gets no fixes, and it just sits there open on the Internet every single day. And there are millions of them. And then you bring in all of the crap around this that this uh, Oracle suit, which was another example of Google cutting corners to try to get fast, quick adoption to slam something into the market so then that way they could get all of these hardware manufacturers to switch over to their crappy platform and have a horrible fight race to the bottom. LG, by the way, just announced this week they're out of the smartphone business entirely. That's all Google-led. Google dumped an operating system on the market that drove the value down, that created a race to the bottom, that created manufacturers to, to make these horrible deals these tor- totally unsupported phones, and now the market is awash in them. And what makes me sick about it is it's all on the back of Linux. Linux is at the core of all of these, and it's a bastardization of what is a beautiful operating system that could deliver a secure, free user experience and instead has been perverted by Google for this use. 
all while getting their backs padded by the open source community, loving them every step of the way for their open source stance and their open source support and their summer of code. And so we never question the almighty Google, even though they've taken the beautiful platform that is Linux and they've weaponized it as a tracking platform as, and now not intentionally an exploit paradise. And it's all on the back of Linux and I hate it. They've turned it into slow. The fact that they spent years trying to perfect a goddamn scroll view. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, I, I know it seems like a mean mean, but that is a stupid problem to have. Yeah, it's just been a bad product. And they're, they're you know what? They're, by the time they finally get it fairly decent, which it's, I mean, it's not, it's pretty, it's in a pretty good state now. You know, I, I enjoy my Pixel, but it's still not as good as iOS. You know what? If somebody comes to me with a, with a business ID and they have an Android, I just ignore them. <laughs> You just decide right there. Oh, they got an Android Wear watch. I won't let them in the door. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not even joking. I've read VC posts. People say if a founder comes to me and he has an Android, nope. Huh. I don't know how I feel about that. It's about taste, and you can look that up. I feel like they've done a better job with Chrome OS. That was just brought up by the chat room. I feel like that's been better managed by Google. Chrome OS. You know what the, you know what the good mobile OS was? Yeah, web OS. Well, yes, web OS, but web OS was never going to happen. Windows Phone 8. No, it had a registry, dude. It's out right there. If it has a registry, it's not on my, it's not going in my pocket. That's just not happening. Yeah, but WebOS was actually the good one. And come on, it was from HP. It was never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, the Google uh, YouTube algorithm thingy decided to show me commercials of the compact iPack from that era. Um, so the late 90s, I guess, in my feed. And for whatever reason, it was right. And I watched it. And man, I had one of those. I actually really liked it. If you were in that ecosystem and you had like the exchange integration, it was it was pretty cool. I just want to say I was a Windows 95 power user. Oh, yeah. Did you actually, you know, you got to get the plus pack then. So that way you get the themes and stuff. Oh, no, I upgraded from 3.1. And then and then you had to get the Windows 95, like OSR2 or whatever it was, where they added USB support. I couldn't do it. I was, I was on Windows. <laughs> then I, but then I got a gateway. Oh, yeah. Cowbox. Yep. Rocking the Casbah. But then I upgraded to Windows 98. What? What's wrong? 98 was great. Didn't work? It was slow. Oh, yeah. You definitely felt it back then. Felt it. Especially on low-end systems. You, you and my systems were low. Yeah. You felt the pain. Yeah, you really felt it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one of those things where, like, we were, you know, it reminds me of the email we got earlier in the show. It's like, it, you it's, you have no idea back then. I mean, it sold new machines. People would just buy it back then when a new Windows would come out. That's when people would just buy entirely new PCs with Windows preloaded on it. Then I sort of skipped Vista because I wasn't crazy. Then I went to 7. Then I went to Mac and Linux. And I'm not going to talk about the machine I'm on now because people will send me hate mail. Well, besides, you got to replace that thing anyway. It's got those dirty x86 processors in it, right? <laughs> yeah, I've done some benchmarks <laughs> with my MacBook Air. It's not great. <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, good. Let's do a little anti-M1 for a moment. So the iMac Pro crushed it, huh? Uh, no, no, no. Oh. No, that's not what happened. Oh, damn it. It's The iMac Pro has a beautiful screen. Uh-huh. Yeah. But did it beat it on the CPU test? Tell me it beat the M1. It's my special little computer, and I love it very much. You're not answering the question, which I think means that it didn't. Oh, I didn't need to hear that. So unless the GPU becomes involved. Ah, yeah, sure. The air is faster. Pour one out for the x86. Honestly, if I was Intel CEO right now, I would not be making snarky commercials. Yeah. With with uh, Justin Long, 
I would be at the bar crying. That might be my character flaw. <laughs> Maybe he can do both, you know, though he is the CEO of Intel. He can probably do both. But do you need Justin Long? I mean, no, no, it does. It, it's bad too, right? Because the funny thing is, is like you're, you're, so he's, he's essentially shitting on products that still are shipping with Intel processors in them. Like they still, I mean, the whole thing's like they're making funny, they're making fun of MacBooks, but they're still MacBooks selling with Intel processors. It was an awkward moment. Like I just want to say, making an advertising campaign, campaign dunking on one of your biggest customers seems super stupid to me. <laughs> but hey, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. What do we know? Lino.com slash coder. Receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. Yeah, $100. $100. And you support the show. Linode is awesome. It's powerful. And you can simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's great prices and modern Linux virtual machines and tools to develop, deploy, and scale applications faster and easier than ever. And what I love about Linode is they are independent. They've been around since 2003. And they are in full control. They set their own ISP up. They run their data centers. They have 11 of them around the world. Super fast connections, super fast native SSDs, and of course, 40 gigabit connections coming into each one of those machines. Linode can really help your ideas come to life on the web, too. If you want to set up a personal portfolio, maybe you want to put a resume online that looks nice or a status pager. Maybe you want to host the backend infrastructure for your community's chat platform or something even else that, heck, I <laughs> I don't really know because I, I'm not you, but I know Linode can do it. They have a full range of systems, dedicated CPUs, dedicated GPUs, $5 a month systems. They're great, and they're 30 to 50% cheaper than the big shops like Azure or uh, that AWS you may have heard of. And they have features similar like S3-compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, simple one-click application deployment, and a lot more. So you should probably just go check it out for yourself and see why they are our cloud hosting provider of choice. Everything we've built and all of the things we have continued to build, it's just really gotten pretty pretty awesome. I should do a machine count at some point. We run it all on Linode. And you can too, linode.com slash coder. I found them a few years ago, started as just something I was doing on my, on my own as a personal thing, and now I use them for everything. And you can too, and you can support the show while getting that $100 credit at linode.com slash coder. Are you uh, going over to uh, the WWDC website right now to make your plans? Because it's been announced. We now know it's going to be virtual again this year. They are leaning in hard on the Craig Federici uh, staring at his laptop in a weird way. And they've announced it'll be June 7th to the 11th for the all online program open to everybody free at no cost. And uh, even if you're not a Apple developer or even interested in any particular thing from Apple. It's kind of fascinating to watch this from a production standpoint because, boy, howdy, if these aren't just the peak of virtual conference production, like nobody does it like these guys do. They also this year are doing a Swift student challenge, and they're going to have additional details on that. So teaching the young ones the Swift. Mm -hmm. It's a big focus at WWDC. Got to get the young ones learned up. I guess if you hate children, that might be a thing you would do. <laughs> no, but I mean, I obviously would love someone to look at me like Craig, Feder Craig Federici looks at the MacBook Air. I mean, who doesn't want that? And yes, I'm going to WWDC, and no, I don't think there's going to be AR glasses because battery life. <sighs> this, is the, this is the shit about the Apple community that is so annoying. The incessant yammering on about like, 
VR goggles or AR or will Apple build a car? Like, get over yourselves. Like, who just wait and see what they ship. Like, this is the like the, the community. There's so much palace intrigue type stories and rumor mill and they have a giant processor transition they're doing yeah they are not shipping and first of all the glasses have a particular problem of the boundaries of physics with battery life now unless they have some amazing battery technology which honestly if they have it they should license it to everybody because that would change humanity yeah, really. Yeah, let's share it. Share it with the world, right? Seriously, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not being a dick. To, to get such battery capacity in such a small package would be a significant leap in like actual battery physics, right? Actual, like the science of storing energy that would be different. Like they would be dunking on Elon Musk like he was uh, the the you know junior varsity basketball team in their shack. But if we return to reality, they don't have that. There's not going to be air glasses. So it's so annoying. If if you think if this isn't just the way they shouldn't just do this, because I'll tell you what, man, you get a lot more information this way because you don't have to pay a thousand dollars to go. It makes it way more accessible to people that are considering getting into development. It makes it way more accessible to children specifically who who, who could never get access to this stuff because they sometimes, you know, they're not old enough to have credit cards and whatnot. Uh, I think like there is a big net benefit to make this open to all. And uh, instead of this, like this, like exclusive, only like 2000 people to 4,000 people can make it there. And it's a thousand dollar ticket. And the price is only going to go up because there's less and less space available. I appreciate the value of those in-person events. You know, me, I, I really understand the value, but this seems like a net improvement for Everyone, because even a, a casual like me can attend these and, and I can feel more informed. And I, I like to have the technical details of things. I am conflicted. As a dev, I feel like the online format is better. But as a sales guy or like a business owner, I guess, which is really a glorified sales guy, right? There's something about the conference, like pub scene, you know, halt the hall track, right? Having said that, WWDC, I mean, I don't want to be too negative if there's a good api that i think i could build a cool app on i'm gonna do it absolutely right look and i'm gonna watch this whole thing and i'm gonna be on the hunt for something like that but my my entire problem like i i'm a you know you know this chris i'm a huge ipad believer but the problems are apple's policies not the technology i mean i don't want to say i'm not going to build something on ios because obviously you, you know me i get excited and i do something and then i don't ship it because i'm crazy Coder Bytes is not coming because of trademark reasons, by the way. So it will be something else. Oh, man. We'll get another, I'm sure there'll be another name out there that'll work. It's going to be uh, Coder Balls. Inappropriate? Past Mike was wise, you know? Past Mike was much calmer. <laughs> no, but I mean, come on. are you excited for WWDC? I mean, I kind of don't give a crap. No, I actually am. I am. It's the home pods. It's the it's the, it's the it's the cumulative radiation from all those home pods. Okay, no, it's not the home pods, but I think they uh, I think they're delivering. I think the iOS platform is looking better than ever. I find it fascinating. The last couple of WWDCs, we've seen them allow uh, some major changes to iOS that we hadn't seen in the past. I think the M1 platform is going to get iterated on. That'll be interesting. Um, and then I think they'll probably send me into some sort of existential crisis and panic when I worry that Linux users will. Uh, leave us all, but I, you know, I've I've calmed down. I've calmed down. I think 
I think there is a good a good portion of Linux users out there who will never be swayed by the shinies of Apple, regardless of what they do. And I have good news for those of us on the platform, Mike. This has been sorely needed. A library that essentially plays a role in just defining the visual language of a GNOME application. You want to make a GNOME application, you can use lib Adwadia to now do that. Sort of like elementary OS's Granite. This is going to be something that's available to all GTK developers. It'll track specific releases with GNOME, so you can target like a GNOME 40 look or a GNOME 42 look, and they'll include guidelines as well as code. And the idea will be a library that kind of grows over time that gives developers an ability to get some of the basics of a standard GNOME application without having to lay out every single button themselves and decide where it all goes. It's like the missing library that the desktop environment needed to get application developers started quicker. Yay. Here I come. I bring my nice little thing and I say, look, daddy, they finally did it. They fixed a complaint of yours and you give me nothing. You, you, you smack it out of my hand and you just tell me to piss off. Well, let me ask you, how many users are going to pay for that software you build with that library? Oh, well, okay. I mean, well, there's, well, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I admit, well, I acknowledge the payment thing's a little tricky. I, I, I grant you. Tricky? <laughs> it's tricky. I would call it the battle of Mm, what battle? Hang on. The six day? No. Mm, hang on. Uh, what was the complete route? Oh, the Alamo. Oh, yeah. Actually, the Alamo, they held up for a while. Hang on. Well, a lot of apps do, and then they finally fall. That does happen. Oh, it's France in World War II. Write down. Sorry, French people. I'm not sorry my stepfather's French, so. Oh, Mike of the past. So that was a lot of fun. I, I listened to that whole episode with you and uh, was making a few notes of a couple of things I want to follow up on. But if anything crossed your mind, go to coder.show slash contact and uh, send it in. What should we follow up on? Let us know. Also, I want to thank our members, coderqa.co, if you want to become a member. A new Coderly is nigh. You support the show. You get a limited ad feed. It's just a great way to know that you're helping keep the show independent, I say. You know, if you got something you enjoy listening to, it's nice knowing that you're helping keep it that way. You can also support the entire network and get access to the features for all of the network shows at jupiter.party. And also, a big thank you to everybody who sends the show a boost. We didn't get a chance to read them this week, or at least read them on air, but we do actually read them every single time you send them in. If you'd like to send us a boost and see how much fun it is, get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. And then send us a boost. If you don't have any sats yet, something like Strike, it's a great way to do that. You can find Mike on Twitter. He's at Dumanuku, and uh, his company is at the Matt Botter Inc. You can follow me over there. Yeah, I'm over there. I mostly just reply. I don't really tweet much. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. I don't seem to get rewarded by the Twitter algorithm for it, though. At Chris LAS, though, if you want to engage in that shenanigans. This year podcast at Coda Radio Show. And the network is at Jupiter Signal. And the links to what we talked about today, that's going to be over at coder.show slash 460. Don't forget, Tailscale is on board now with the Coder Radio program. Whoop, whoop. Go get yourself a super secure mesh network. That's at tailscale.com slash coder. And of course, a big thank you to Linode for their continued support, linode.com slash coder, for $100 in 60-day credit. You're welcome to join us as always. The show's live Mondays, jblive.tv at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program, and we'll see you next week.